the fate of the college football playoff is in flux. Plus, later on, we have an excellent interview with someone whose career as an executive has essentially been a tour of the sports world. It's Thursday, August 31st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The college football playoff is trying to chart its future through uncertain times. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Good. Great to have you. So the CFP Board of Managers met on Wednesday. What exactly are they trying to figure out? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, the meeting amongst uh, this board, which is the commissioners and the Notre Dame athletic director, um, was regularly scheduled to just talk about, you know, the sort of granular details of the CFP and theoretically to talk about ironing out some of the details about the 12 team expansion, which is going to happen next year. Um, but after the recent round of realignment, uh, which essentially, um, might result in one of the power five conferences no longer existing, um, they obviously had to discuss uh, what, you know, whether or not that would precipitate a change in the 12 team format, in the six and six uh, bid structure. You know, they already had to, um, they already knew they were going to have to reconsider their revenue distribution. This makes it even more complicated. Um, you know, but really the number one thing that they're going to have to figure out, which it doesn't appear that they did, is what the role of Pac-12 Commissioner George Klievkoff is going to be um, regarding votes for changes to the CFP that happen after um, this season, right? Because he may not be a Power 5 commissioner. He may not be a commissioner at all. So it's unclear whether or not he could or should get a vote. Yeah. And is there any clarity on on any of that, really? Uh, and yeah, what if if the Pac-12 is going to uh, if it's ex- lack of existence after you know the next year or two is going to um, ha- how that's going to shape things? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no clarity because, um, you know, I, I saw that the reports coming out of the meeting were that, you um, you know, the executive director of the CFP reportedly said that, you know, everyone's going to have to wait till the dust settles to dis- to really have a serious conversation about revenue distribution, formatting. Um, you know, I- ironically enough, there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation with the Pac-12 because um, it's possible the Pac-12 will just completely disintegrate with all the co- with all the schools going in their own separate ways. Um, if there is a scenario in which the naming rights of the Pac-12 are, you know, somehow retained, given to maybe the Mountain West or by some miracle that I don't think is very likely, the Pac-12 is able to, um, you know, poach enough members from other conferences to rebuild, like the CFP still decides whether or not um, a power five, you know, a conference is a power five conference in terms of their revenue that they get from the CFP and their voting authority. So, you know, based on the composition of a PAC-12, if it exists, the CFP would then decide, um, you know, potentially how much strength it would have. 
um, in postseason football. Interesting. And for the Klyavkov end of it, how big a deal is that, you know, sort of how much power he has going forward? Um, I mean, look, I think it's a huge deal because um, he's essentially the commissioner of a defunct conference right now. Um, or a conference that will be defunct a year from now. And, you know, even if the PAC 12 is retained, it's, it, it doesn't seem that any, there's any appetite for Klievkov to continue on as the commissioner um, of whatever conference that looks like. Right. I mean, no, you know, there were comments reportedly made about how folks wish Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West commissioner, was their commissioner. I think it was a Washington, you know, like an anonymous Washington state official told um, the Mercury Mercury News. So um, I think it's very important for them to decide who is voting on these choices before the choices are voted on. I don't see why Klievkov would have a vote. Um, and then another sort of weird caveat to that is the CFP board of managers is currently 11 people, Right. So you take Klievkov out, then it's 10. You can't have a board with an even number of people because then there's no tiebreaker. So they would have to make some hard decisions about who, if they were going to bring in another independent school athletic director, maybe kick Jack Swarbrick out, which I don't see happening. Um, but they're, you know, they would have to rethink the composition of who makes the decisions before they even talk about what the scenarios could be. All right. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Amanda Krisovich, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Up next, I spoke to Jeffrey Pollack, who has worked with the Los Angeles Chargers, the XFL, the Professional Bull Riders Association, and the World Series of Poker, and is now the first ever professor of practice at the McCormick Department of Sports Management at the University of Massachusetts Eisenberg School of Management. I got to spend some time tapping into that vast wealth of experience, and that conversation is next. I am joined now by Jeffrey Pollack, the first ever professor of practice at the McCormick Department of Sports Management at the University of Massachusetts Eisenberg School of Management. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Great to be here and uh, good to connect. Yeah, and there's uh, a ton I, I hope to get to get uh, get to with you. So you've been an executive, often at the highest level, with the Los Angeles Chargers, the XFL, the Professional Bull Riders Association, the World Series of Poker, and are now in your your new brand new role at the at the McCormick Department. Uh, so what are you doing in this new role, and how does it draw on that previous experience? Well, all those experiences only mean that I've been in the industry a while, and uh, I guess that makes me sort of on the old side. Uh, but I like to keep it fresh. And, and part of keeping it fresh for me um, is, is giving back um, uh, to students and the next generation of leadership in the sports industry. I have a long history with uh, the McCormick Department at UMass. I actually got my master's from there in 2003. It took me three years to uh, do the work that would otherwise take a year full time. And before they had any sort of remote uh, or distance learning program, they uh, made an exception and an accommodation for me to fit uh, my career um, and allowed me to go back and, and really take one class at a time for three years, uh, almost as an individual tutorial for each class and get my master's. So I've got a long history with McCormick. And back then, you know, now 23 uh, years ago, um, I, I set the intention to one day 
returning uh, as a, a teacher and instructor uh, at uh, Eisenberg, and, and that's come true, and I'm, I'm honored to have this first ever position. So you worked with the, the Chargers, um, and the NFL is just such a commercial juggernaut, and I think the standard answer when this comes up uh, around why that is, is, well, Americans just love football. They can't get enough. How would you say the league has shaped the, its product on the field and off into this Goliath we see today? Yeah, well, you're right, and it can't be um, uh, overstated. Uh, Americans do love football. Uh, when I was uh, at the XFL, uh, Vince McMahon, who owned it at the time, uh, had the insight to commission um, a major piece of research into uh, the American football fan. And, and what we found, and no surprise, you know, there are about 250 million Americans uh, who love football, something like uh, 30% of everyone 12 and over considers themselves an avid NFL fan. Um, and it, it's, it's an absolute juggernaut. It's the biggest professional sports league. Uh, and it really is uh, a passion and almost religion in America. And there's just no denying that. And yeah, so you are president and CEO of the XFL for a stretch that seems both like you know, the, the, you've, you've got such potential because, yeah, there is that this religion of football that we live in. At the same time, it's a religion of the NFL and of college football. And so what was it like trying to carve out a spot with football, but with a brand of football that people aren't especially familiar with? Yeah. So what we found was that there's this gap in the action from really the end of the Super Bowl to August that um, a lot of fans wanted to see filled in some way. And, and the XFL, uh, certainly the 2020 version and the most recent version as well, and also uh, the return of the USFL, uh, they're, they're filling that gap. But that gap is, is, is meaningful. Um, and the number of fans who want that gap filled uh, is meaningful. And, and they've both, I think, gotten off to a, a good start. Uh, one uh, message I get a lot is, you know, this many players or this, this guy, um, was just signed by an NFL team. And I'm wondering if that is actually the path to getting fans interested is, you know, similar to college football, the stars of this league, they could be on your favorite NFL team. And so you don't just have to get invested in this league as its own separate entity where you, you learn a whole new set of players and a whole new set of teams and they're very good, but not quite NFL good. Um, if there is that pipeline to the, the juggernaut, um, I'm wondering if that could be what unlocks the, the ability to really uh, bring spring football to the masses. It, it, it's interesting. The, the most recent XFL certainly has been making um, a lot of noise about the number of players that are signing some form of NFL contract. I think the number now is well over 50. And it seems as though their fan base uh, is responding well to that. And that could go to, I think, uh, sort of the um, you know, American dream of growth and opportunity and advancement. And this new XFL has positioned itself as a league of opportunity. And that does seem to be striking um, a, a chord that uh, people are responding to. Um, I don't know that in 2020, that would have been the playbook we followed. We never got that far. Uh, the pandemic uh, short-circuited our season midway through. Uh, but certainly, you know, this most recent version, um, that is important, uh, not just marketing, 
hook for them, but really seems to be uh, part of their ethos and, and their reason for being. And it does seem as though fans are responding. It'll be interesting next season when they come back to see, you know, what um, stars have gone to the NFL uh, full time and, and who returns. Uh, but, but they certainly seem to be onto something uh, by positioning themselves as a gateway uh, to personal opportunity and growth. Yeah, I wonder if they're taking a page from the G League because I feel like I've started hearing more and more about the G League as we've started to see um, players from there make their mark in in the NBA and you know be very high draft choices. So I, again, it's sort of to me the even I even think about fantasy football and fantasy baseball where if player if 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 uh, fans feel like there is. Um, you know, some potential, like everyone loves a, a good prospect. You're like, oh yeah, our team stinks right now, but we've got this guy coming up. He's going to be great next year, the year, year later. I feel like um, that that hope that really drives so much fandom, um, I feel like in, that could be, you know, what what makes a league like that, um, you know, tap into that the fervor that fans already have because so much of it is drawn into the the NBA, the NFL, MLB, you know, whatever your thing is. Well, well, I've long believed that hope is fundamentally what sports marketing is about. You're selling hope. You're selling hope of your team uh, winning a game, uh, winning a season, winning a world championship, trading for that player who make may make the difference. Uh, but hope is fundamentally what sports marketing is about. Um, I'm partnered with Tracy McGrady on a new basketball league called OBL, the Ones Basketball League. And, and our entire premise as well is about creating a platform for hope and opportunity and change for basketball players, talented basketball players, who for whatever reason, life didn't set them up to get the look that they, they would otherwise deserve. And, and our focus as well is on creating um, a, a platform of opportunity now in basketball. Um, and, and there is an audience, uh, more than an audience for that, I do believe fundamentally, well, while sports fans always want to see the best of the best play, I also believe that anything that promotes a sense of connection to the fulfillment of hope and opportunity resonates very well. Yeah, and we've actually had Tracy on the show to talk about that league. And, and yeah, it does make you think about how there's what I think 450 NBA players at any given time. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how many G League players and college players, but there's still, you know, everyone 2000 through 2 billion of, you know, people who play basketball. You've got a, a lot of people to work with. And, you know, some of them have to be supremely talented. I want to jump around to a couple of different topics just while we have you and you know, and your wealth of experience. So you've advised uh, NBA uh, on NBA and NHL team sell, sales, and basically my my mental rule right now is every team sale is going to top the last one. It seems uh, you know obviously depends on the market and the circumstances and all that, but it just seems like things are only going up. Do you think there's any risk that we're in a, a sort of billionaire's bubble or some kind of bubble where at some point these are going to start coming down and recalibrate or, or not really? <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not a mental rule. It's a, it's a quantifiable fact in, in the modern history of professional sports over the last, call it, 30 years. Um, there has never been a sale of a major four 
team less than the previous sale price. These team values only continue to go up and up in large part driven by the uniqueness of live sports programming, um, but, but also the media rights uh, and, and, and where sports fits in terms of consumer engagement. What has happened, though, is that uh, the price of admission into these clubs, which are among the most exclusive on the planet, has only continued to rise. And it isn't as easy to go buy a major league team today as it was even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, some would say maybe even uh, five years ago. Um, and that has um, resulted in what I believe to be this golden age of alternative sports properties where you now see new leagues starting um, and new leagues growing at a pace uh, that is pretty extraordinary and included in that. And I wouldn't consider them alternative leagues, but women's sports properties, which are as legitimate as um, the traditional men's sports properties, you're seeing values increase there too. I think that is a bit of sort of trickle down, um, you know, economics, if you will, where the market for sports properties is, is so robust, it's so rich in terms of the price of admission to the major leagues. There's so much money that wants to get into sports. So now investors are looking at everything else that is out there. And it really has created this, this golden age uh, that we're living in um, uh, for the sports industry. And, and I don't think there's any end in sight uh, to the appreciation uh, in sports asset value, certainly among the major leagues, but I think now you're seeing in 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 other leagues as well, and it's it's exciting. It's good for the industry. It's good for fans. It's certainly good, great uh, for athletes and players. So it's it's a special time to to be part of the sports industry, and this is all part of what I want to you know bring to UMass, if you will, sort of the the practical. Uh, understanding and, and application of everything that's happening in the sports industry. So you're also an executive at the World Series of Poker. Um, I remember when that went from something that, you know, the people who knew about it were the ones playing it and, and not too many uh, other folks to this huge phenomenon where it's on ESPN and people all over the world. I mean, there was that big poker boom in the early 2000s. Um, I think it was largely ESPN fueled and also rounders, I guess, came out in the late 90s. Anyway, if you could just speak to um, what that boom has been like and if you've been tracking that industry um you know, are, are we, what kind of period are we in now? Did the boom kind of sustain itself long enough to, to just keep that level? I, I really haven't been following the poker industry um, uh, over the recent years, but, but you're right. There was a, a, a boom period there uh, in the early 2000s and extending uh, forward, certainly from the time I got involved. I think uh, the boom was uh, in large part uh, you know, the Chris Moneymaker effect, uh, nice. but also um, ESPN's partnership with the WSOP at that time uh, when I was involved was extraordinary. And, and it, it gave us and, and the team we had in place to sort of modernize the WSOP. It gave all of us an opportunity uh, to reposition the World Series of Poker in a way as a sports property. And the premise was, going back to my earlier comment about hope, we, we presented the WSOP for the first time ever as something that you could 
watch one year on ESPN, make the decision to enter because anyone could enter, anyone could win, um, and and have that that sense of uh, accessibility to the hope of doing something extraordinary. If you watch the NBA or NHL on ESPN, you're you you know in, unless you're an extraordinary young, highly gifted athlete, there's almost you know there's very little chance you're gonna sort of be able to be on that stage one day. But with the World Series of Poker. Anyone can enter, anyone can win. It's an extraordinarily open uh, and almost you know, democratic form uh, of, of uh, hope in sports. And, and that was part of uh, the positioning. I do believe, I know that that positioning helped um, elevate the WSOP and set the foundation for the you know, multi-billion dollar uh, you know, enterprise it's become. Yeah, no, there, there's no, no greater source of hope than uh then you know anyone can play poker anyone can get lucky and anyone can say you know what maybe i can read people maybe i do have a knack for this uh jeffrey pollock really appreciate all the insights across the board thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me look forward to talking to you again that is it for today hit that subscribe button and the rating button and any other buttons in your path thanks for listening we will see you tomorrow